So if you've got a Bible, please uh, turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to read the first 15 verses of uh, this, uh, this chapter. So Genesis 35, 1 to 15. Uh, in the uh, New King James Version, it's entitled, Jacob Returns to Bethel. And it's quite important that uh, we understand uh, that particular title, because this really is an explanation of the message and the... Uh, Uh, the line of thinking that we will be looking at. So Jacob returns to Bethel. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, I want you to listen very carefully to this. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem, and they journeyed. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakoth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Badam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he talked with him. A pillar of stone and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel. And we thank the Lord for his word. So two weeks ago, we found ourselves witnessing the wrestling match that took place. You can remember, it's very graphic. Uh, Jacob is uh, there. He's gone across the Jebok uh, brook. And uh, he, he almost instantly, it's all about prayer that comes in here. And almost instantly, this, this man comes before him. And they're wrestling together. And they wrestle all night. And Jacob overcomes this man. And eventually... Um, The Lord, because that's who it is that he's wrestling, the Lord touches Jacob's hip 
And the effect is absolutely dramatic, instantaneous and dramatic, because Jacob's hip is wrenched out of joint. Now, I've never had a, 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 a joint wrenched out of, um, out, of, out of joint, but I can imagine it must be very painful. My little daughter has had her, uh, uh, her elbow uh, has come out of joint a few times, and she just holds it, and she's crying, so it must be very, very helpful. And the doctor comes up, gives it a bit of a twist. There's a bit of a clicking sound, and suddenly everything pops back together. But that's not the case that we have here, because as we saw two weeks ago, Jacob limps into the promised land. Jacob is not able to run after the Lord because his hip has been ripped out of joint. So the last thing he can do is to stand up and run. That option is not available to him. He's unable to pursue in any way whatsoever. So he does the only thing that he can, which is to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. He clings to the Lord. And Genesis 32 and verse 26 says, Uh, Jacob is saying, he's speaking here, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until I receive from you the blessing that I am looking for. This evening, as you contemplate your life, some of us have a lot to contemplate, perhaps more than others. But as you contemplate your life, as you contemplate the struggles that you feel that are taking place in your life, the things that just are not going right, the things that you wish with all your heart had never happened, perhaps sin has come into your life. And instead of fighting it, you've succumbed to it. And you have allowed the evil one to come into your life and to wreak havoc, perhaps in your family. And you're responsible for that. You allowed that situation to come in. You allowed it to take place. So as you consider your life, as you consider the struggles that you feel, the pain you experience, the doubts that wash over you, the loneliness that some of us feel, the rejection that some of us feel, the rejection of the world around us, And you need to cling to Christ. Because you've tried everything else and it's failed. You need to refuse to let him go. You need to be determined to see the Lord bless you and to bring blessing to you. Now as you consider Jacob, you may well ask yourself the question, when will I ever be able to wrestle with God to wrestle with the Lord like Jacob did at Peniel. I mean, in my life, it's just never going to happen. You know, I know me. You all know yourselves. And you might think to yourself, could I ever do that? Well, the answer to this question is actually very, very simple. You will be able to wrestle in the way that Jacob did when you want the blessing of God and the fulfillment of his promises in your life more than, dare I say, more than life itself. But as I say that, you're thinking to yourself, the bar is too high. I could never, ever want to experience that in my life. I could never want God more than life itself. 
And this is precisely why the vast majority of God's people do not enjoy more than what could be described as a modicum. Is that a word we use here? Modicum means small amount, like really small, minuscule. And yet that's the situation that many people are quite content to live with. To have a tiny, tiny amount of blessing in their life. A modicum. A small portion of divine resources that are available to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely lavished on us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will in his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. So cling to Christ and be rich. Cling to him for the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, which are ours through faith in the Savior. As we put our trust and our hope and our belief in him, we are able to call upon the riches of heaven, which is beyond any of our wildest imaginations. And they're ours in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, we come to the first of three messages of the final theophany that we see here in Genesis. The final appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ that is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Now it's worth noting that Genesis 35 not only sees the last of the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis, but the chapter itself is the end of an era. Because when you turn over into chapter 36, the first thing that we see is a list of genealogies. And then from chapter 37 on, Joseph is the hero in what is very clearly a totally new section of Genesis. 
Unlike Abraham, unlike Isaac and Jacob, Joseph is not in the messianic line. And that is most probably the principal reason why he does not receive a theophany, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the covenant people as a whole, by virtue of Jacob's 12 sons, have now become many fathers. The nation has been founded and the Son of God decides that he no longer needs to reveal himself on earth until the destiny of Israel is once again entrusted into the hands of just one man. And that's with the rising of Moses. But that's another story for another day and we look forward to looking into that one at some point. So the appearance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, uh, that we have recorded for us today in Genesis 35 is the third, the last, and truthfully, the least well-known theophanies granted to Jacob. However, it must have been the most enduring, the one that made the greatest impression on him, as Jacob is lying on his deathbed in Egypt many years later. It was not the stairway up to heaven that he thought about. It wasn't fighting the, the wrestle uh, wrestling match that took place that he thought about, it was the one that we've just read together here. It was the final and the most gracious of all appearances that filled his heart with wonder and gratitude. And we see that recorded for us in Genesis 48, 3 and 4. And this is the appearance of the Savior that we're going to close this series with. And I plan, as I say, that there'll be three studies that we will have. And this evening, we're considering what I've entitled a, a broken vow. Uh, next Sunday evening, we're going to consider a divine prescription. Uh, the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and many chances. And we thank him for that. And then lastly, <clears throat> uh, we're going to bring uh, the series uh, to a close with the title, The Final Appearance. Jacob was delighted to discover that Esau bore him no, no grudge. You realize that the, the story has gone through, that uh, uh, Jacob discovers that he is going to be meeting his brother Esau, and uh, he's uh, on that plane, and uh, somebody comes to him and says, your brother's on his way to meet him. Oh, and by the way, he's got 400 men with him. Well, you know, 400 men, I would describe as an army, okay? And, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, the last time I had anything to do with my brother, I swindled him out of a lot of things, told a few lies. You know, it wasn't a great situation that he had. So Jacob was absolutely delighted to discover that Esau bore him no grudge. After their 20-year separation, you'll remember that just before the wrestling match with the Lord, Jacob is facing the prospect of meeting his brother Esau, and he's not happy about it. Jacob is told that Esau is coming and that there is an army coming along with him. Jacob, of course, has every reason to fear his brother because of the way that he had treated him by deceiving him out of his birthright. And so we read in Genesis 32, verse 7, So Jacob was greatly afraid, and he was distressed. And I've got a feeling that all of us here would have had exactly the same feelings in these circumstances. Now, when the two brothers met, Jacob discovers that Esau bore him no grudge. In fact, Esau puts his arms around Jacob and kisses him. Remember, they're twin brothers. But after their 20-year separation, Esau sows graciousness and respect towards Jacob. Now, Esau, on their meeting, suggests to Jacob 
that they should both make their way to a place called Seor. But Jacob was right to refuse the invitation. And he makes up essentially an excuse not to go with his brother. And it's that that we're going to look at very, very quickly this evening. You see, friends, Jacob had been converted. He had come to faith in God. Uh, Back in the place, uh, Jacob had named Bethel the place where he had used a stone as a pillow and where he had slept and had dreamt of that stairway going up to heaven and he had seen the angels coming down and descending and descending. But remember who he saw at the top of the stairwell, at the top of the staircase. He sees the Lord looking down and the Lord wants to come down that staircase. He sees the world. He wants to come, but the time is not right for him to do that. But we see and we understand the urgency that there is there. And we discover here that uh, Jacob has come to faith, the place where he'd used that stone and the pillow that he had slept on, and he dreamt that dream. And when he awoke, everything had changed. You see, the saving truth of the gospel, and this is important for all of us to understand, must convince and transform our minds. It has to. If that has not happened in your life, you've not been saved. If there hasn't been the transformation, the transformative power of God working in your heart and mind, then nothing's changed. You must be convinced and transformed. Your mind has to be changed. Because we read that when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. Something's changed. He wasn't aware. Then he is aware. Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. The reality of the situation sets in and he suddenly sees where he is. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, he says in Genesis 28, 16 to 17. And friends, this is the reaction, certainly not untypical, of those who hear God speaking to them for the first time. The first time that they see and recognize God. You see, Jacob was right not to follow Esau to Seir, which was in Edomite territory, in what we know as the kingdom of Jordan today, on the wrong side of the river. Jacob knew that he had to remain in the promised land and that his family must now retain its distinct identity. So he returns across the Jabbok. But friends, he makes a terrible mistake. Terrible. In fact, utterly appalling, a fundamental error. He and his family arrived safely in Shechem in Cana, and he camped within sight of the city, the scriptures tell us. And then, for a hundred pieces of silver, he bought... From the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he'd pitched his tent. So he'd bought a piece of land. Now, it doesn't sound too bad, does it? I reckon there's quite a lot of us here who own, well, I'm not one of them, but who own some land between us. Could probably own quite a lot of land. Might be the odd farmer in here who's got more land than they shake a stick at. I don't know, but for a hundred pieces of silver, he bought this piece of land. 
And there he set up an altar and he called it El Elohim Israel. God is the God of Israel. Genesis 33, 18 to 20. Seems okay. Seems harmless. He even builds an altar to show how serious he is about this. Can't be wrong with that. You know, praise God. Doing everything right. He does what he thinks is right. God's going to like this. You know, stands back, looks at the altar. But the result of this disastrous move across the river Jordan to Shechem was the rape of his daughter, mass murder, shame, and the imminent destruction of God's chosen people. Genesis 34 is a terrible read. It's appalling. It records the defiling of his daughter, Dina, and the subsequent dreadful revenge of Jacob's son upon the men of Shechem. In fact, we can only marvel at the honesty of Moses in including this damning indictment of the fathers of the tribes of Israel in his inspired history and most of all the amazing grace God displayed in not discarding them all. Here's a flavor of the ghastly situation, including the relationship that pertained between Jacob and his sons. Listen to the last couple of verses of chapter 34. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites the people living in this land. We are only few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now, it's a dramatic ending to Genesis chapter 34. The final exchange between Jacob and his sons shows the terrible and blatant sin that there was in the whole family. And Jacob... He's only concerned about himself. Utterly indifferent to the evils committed by his sons and more worried about upsetting the Canaanites than he is about upsetting the Lord. Little wonder that his sons appear insolent, violent, and lawless. Now we're probably about 10 years down the line from the tremendous night when Jacob wrestled with and overcame the Son of God at Peniel. And we ask ourselves the question, how could things have turned so badly? How could they have turned out so badly for this family? The man who wrestled with the Son of God and overcame, the man who clung to the Lord to receive the blessing. Don't leave me, he said, without blessing me. How is it possible? We'd say in our lives we'd never allow that, wouldn't we? And perhaps you're wondering how in the world has my family got itself into quite frankly not a dissimilar situation. You're saddened by all that has happened. How could it have happened to us? And perhaps you're blaming God and you're holding him responsible. How could it have happened to us? 
So what went wrong for Jacob? Well, the answer is really quite straightforward again. It all stemmed from the fact that Jacob did not keep the vow that he had made all those years earlier at Bethel. Remember, he was running from Esau. Esau was going to kill him as soon as his father, Isaac, had passed away and they'd finished mourning for him, the detail in the scripture tells us. And as soon as all that had happened, Esau was going to come and, 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 uh, and, and kill Jacob. This was his plan. And Jacob finds himself asleep on the rock, uh, which uh, a rock for a pillow, and he dreams of this stairway, and the Lord speaks to him, reaffirming the covenant with him. And then in the morning, Jacob makes a vow, and he's saying this. He says, if, and that word if should perhaps better be translated, or since. Or since God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be my God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give to you a tenth. This is before the law is given. So, you know, it's nothing to do with, with the law in terms of, of tithing and so on. So he makes this decision that this is what he's going to do. Friends, a vow is a solemn matter that a believer should rarely make and never break. We make vows when we marry. When we're baptized in a in this church, we make a vow. We make a promise that we're going to live for the Lord for the rest of our lives. A vow is not an everyday, ordinary occurrence. We should never make promises to one another that we do not keep. And what this passage of Scripture teaches us is that the failure to keep a vow always entails consequences. Always. You see, part of the vow that Jacob had made was that he would establish a place of worship of the Lord at Bethel when he returned to the promised land. But whilst he lived for 10 years or so at Shechem, just 15 miles from Bethel, for some reason he neglected to fulfill his vow. Probably because it was more convenient for him to build another altar and worship outside the door of his tent without having to go to the place that he had promised God he would go. How dangerous it is for ourselves and our families when we make our worship and Christian service a matter of convenience. Jacob bought the land that he was living on and set up an altar and called it El Elohim Israel. God is the God of Israel. But friends, this name means nothing if you're not obeying God. Nothing. It doesn't matter if we believe all the right things. Even a profession of faith openly for all to hear. If our lives are essentially disobedient to God, it means nothing. 
In fact, it means worse than nothing. It means that we are hypocrites. The vow Jacob made was that he would worship the Lord at Bethel when he returned to the promised land. But instead, he lived for 10 years or so at Shechem. Jacob should not have bought the land from the Canaanites. Why should he have not done that? Because it was an absolute insult for God. God is going to give them the whole of the promised land. He would give all of Canaan to Israel. And until that time, God's people were to live in a land as aliens and strangers. And here's the parallel. In the same way, friends, we're to sit light in this world. Do you see the connection now? We're not to have such a stake in this world that might suggest that we are not longing for a better country, for a heavenly one, which God has prepared for us. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. You notice how easy it is to become ensnared by the ideas and the values and the goals of a godless world. Some of us are investing everything we have in this world. Money. We're chasing after money. Relationships. The wrong relationships and we know they're wrong. Drugs and alcohol, young people, free love, greed, and a chasing after the wind. Where are we investing? And this leads us to also notice that not only was Jacob living in the wrong place, but he was living the wrong way. Sadly, the poor example of his own fatherhood set uh, while he was growing up, resulted, as it often does, in the cycle repeating itself, hopelessness, just repeating itself over and over again. And what a responsibility all parents have to break that cycle of hopelessness. Can you believe that here in these verses we find that Jacob even allowed his household to possess idols? Yesterday, when we met many of these people, at Deep Tea's Thanksgiving service. They were all idol worshippers. The majority of them. And I felt very much that we were in a place of evil. But there was great protection. And we suddenly found the freedom to be able to speak and to share the gospel was incredible. But can you imagine that here in these verses we find Jacob even allowed his household to possess pagan idols and other religious paraphernalia and so on. Rachel had stolen Laban, uh, Laban's uh, household gods and didn't want to upset her by removing them. Jacob's spiritual laxity was further displayed in the way permitted her family to mingle ultimately to dis uh, so disastrously with the Shechemite people. Jacob was supposed to be the spiritual leader of his family, of his household. But where was he when all this happened? And all this occurred 
because he had failed to keep his vow. The Lord will be my God. Instead, Jacob was asleep, and perhaps we're asleep. Who is your God? Do you care? Perhaps you just don't believe that there is a God. Or if there is, he's certainly not interested in me. He never speaks to me. I never hear his voice. He doesn't love me. But he does love you. He loves you so very much. You're made in his image. And he wants you to love him. Three times in the last three verses that we've read together, verses 13, 14, and 15, God talked with a man. And God still talks to us. But the question is, are we listening? You see, it's not God who's not talking, but it is we who are not listening. Now, we spoke of these verses this morning in John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus looks and asks a simple question. He looks and he says, do you believe this? That's it. Do you believe this? If you do, then it's time to repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, trust him, and believe in all he has done for you. Surrender your life to him, and then live for Jesus, and with Jesus for all eternity. Do you believe this? It wasn't difficult. You could say no. If that's the honest answer. Do it now before it's too late. The night is coming when no man can work. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Call to him. Repent of your sin. And receive what only he can give. New life. Be born again. Rejoice in your salvation. Know that you're saved.